Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design and Exec Club Spotlight. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Drum by Design, and joining me is Matteo Bologna. How did I go pronouncing your name, Matteo? Uh, perfect. After, I don't know, 10 years that we know each other, finally you pronounce it. Yeah, uh, was it because I was you... moving? Because I was moving my hands, maybe Matteo Bologna. Bologna, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so nice to see you and great to have you here. Now, looking at your background there, you're in New York. We can tell that because the yeah, white painted wall looks like New York. Um, it's evening for you. Um, but today is possibly one of the most interesting days in branding and marketing in the world. At the New York Open today, one of the players got fined $10,000 for having their logo too large. Now, I think every graphic designer could, they're either going to say the logo can never be too large or they're listening to the client is saying, can you make it a little bit bigger for me? It's, um, it's the designer's dilemma. Make the logo bigger. Yes, there's also a fantastic well, so, so now you have reference, you can say, well, actually, you might get fined if you're at the New York Open uh, or the US Open because um, it's a $10,000 fine if your logo is too large. There you are. I would love to be able to find my clients when they ask for that. Okay, so viewers, we're going to go into a couple of things here. Um, Matteo's got on, and just right, so you can see your shirt, it's a beautiful Olivetti piece of type there. Isn't that amazing? It's the first logo. The first logo. And I think you've recently just been a judge on the Olivetti type competition. Yes, they did a competition for their new uh, corporate font. And uh, there have actually been two winners, one that is an amazing Italian designer and one that is an amazing Mexican designer, all students, and, and they produce typefaces that are amazing. Okay, I want to drill into this because, you know, we're talking about a better future. One of the things about a better future is a strong economic proposition. And a fantastic typeface is going to have two things that will do for a business. If it's a corporate typeface, in about what, five years, they pay off their typeface if they've gone to somebody like you or other people to get a corporate typeface. Hopefully and, from me. Sorry? Hopefully from me. Hope, uh, well, well, we're going to get into why they would have to come to you. Okay? Um, but the idea that they... Organizations are spending money licensing type that is used by everyone else and looks just like everyone else. And they're doing that every year without realizing they have options and that options would be to get some beautiful corporate type. Yeah, um, I often use the, um, the story that it comes from my experiences being an Italian. I, I, I was born in Italy and I live in New York and uh, all the Italian movies were, all the foreign movies were dubbed in Italian. And the weirdest thing that was happening was that you could have Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman dubbed by the same actor, mm -hmm. which doesn't make any sense. And to me is the same as two different companies, they, and they both use the same typeface. Let's say Helvetica. Why would you do that? There's no real reason unless you're like a slave of this 
Swiss uh, uh, way of thinking about design where everything is to be a system. And uh, it just makes you look like anyone else because companies are using words to communicate and they need to use, and they use typefaces to communicate their brand. And if your company uses the same typeface that I'm using, we can get, I can maybe think that you are the one who's talking or it's me. I don't know. As a, as a customer, it can create some confusion and it's very subtle because um, a lot of people don't really understand this difference and, or they think they don't, um, but it's there. And it's, and, and the truth is, it's a very subliminal thing that the customer uh, feels and perceive. Mm. So having a, a typeface that is being designed for your own company, that it's owned by you, it's like having your own voice. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't want me, I would never want to have your voice because, uh, um, I mean, because it's okay. so my voice is perfect on me. Your voice is perfect on you. Yes, of course. Of course. But if we, if we both use Robert Redford's voice, I mean, besides the fact that we will be uh, way sexier, makes us sexier, but at the same time, people would confuse us. Okay, so I want, I just want to dig in a little bit there about because because you've now been able to explain the reason for for a, a custom typeface in a way that I've never heard it explained before. So so if you had Robert Redford's fa uh, voice and I had Robert Redford's voice, there is no difference because. So much of our communication is actually just about the, the voice. It's not about the, the vision. The other thing is that there's quirks in your voice. That is the, the culture and the personality of Matteo. And there's quirks in my voice. That's my culture and personality. And there's, if we're both using the same quirks and personality of Robert Redford's voice, we've lost our own identity. And we've also, as you say, we've blurred the lines of what's, what makes us different, make, what makes us special. So there's an economic reason to do it, which is you're just spending, there's a rational reason. You're spending too much money on type. So for the people who are the rational types inside the company, five year return on investment, probably shorter than that because your business is gonna grow. So therefore your licensing fees are gonna grow. The, Non-rational part is about identity, it's about personality, and it's about telling people that you're here. And, yeah. and I think everybody that knows Driven by Design would know our little turtle. Hang on, let's see if I... I think everyone knows this little, the little turtle logo. We recently did an upgrade on that because we've got the 12 different award programs and they've all got a different colour we had a monochromatic turtle that didn't have that accent. And I went to the lady who does our branding, Fiona Brand, a brand by name. 
And I said, can you actually bring that personality in? She went, she did this beautiful treatment, which turns it into, the, it's almost like the turtle now has a tie-dye top on. It, it's, it's glorious. But it's still, our, it's our shape with a different personality accent. And I think what you're going to get with type is that you're going to get something that has your personality accent. And there's many of your customers are still using, and I know this is a problem here, they, they're still using some of the beautiful work that you went and did with them that became the personality of their of their business. I think one of them is Belazar. Am I right there? They're still using yeah. work you did a long time ago for them. Yes. It's, um, I think, smart clients are the ones who are, uh, once they start to adopt a typeface, that is their own, unique. And they use a, a visual system that it's definitely recognizable as their own. Mm -hmm. The smartest clients are the one who are able to keep using it over and over and over and over without falling victims of the new marketing director who comes in and says, hey, let's change something just because I've been hired and my job is to make the investors happy for the next quarter. Yeah. It's really thinking about, instead it's thinking about the next decade. When you start investing on a, a typeface and a type program, it's really thinking about using this voice and maintaining the voice, the sound of the voice, forever for as long as possible of course the voice is going to change because the company evolves ages or uh, pivot but it's very important to try to make sure that the customer every time sees this typeface used by this brand hears the voice behind himself in, in a line hears this voice and says oh i know this voice it belongs to that brand. So really the investment is to try to build uh, your own typeface and using it forever. Change the, the, the you can change the, the, the message, the wording, the copy, the colors, but maintaining, uh, holding on that typeface, it's, 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 in a certain way, I'm going to say it's priceless. The truth is it costs a lot of money to have a typeface developed. And at the same time, it's one of the best investments that a company could make because it's a typeface goes across hundreds and hundreds of campaigns. Yeah. You can choose the campaign and the typeface and the voice, the sound of the voice is always there. But if it was a commercial... Um, typeface. We'd expect to have a, a, a family with a range of weights in it as well. So you'd be seeing that there's also the opportunity for the organization to have their shape, but with different weights. Oh, yes. Absolutely. The uniqueness of their personality. So it doesn't have to be, well, we've got an extrapolation of our logo, you know, mm -hmm. of our logo type. But it's like, no, no, no. It's actually build the family, give, give breadth to the expression because sometimes you want it to be light and soft 
Other times you want it to be quite bold and, and, and outstanding. Other times it's in the, in the middle. So I think the, the idea that people are saying, I've got a rational reason, the five-year five payback, that's rational. But as we know with business, it's always about the non-rational. It's about the connection. It's about what defines your personality and your culture. And that's going to come from having the, the typeface there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I would say absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I have a quick, stupid joke. Um, um, it's not really a joke. I just said absolutely right. I Think about the brand Absolute Vodka. If I write a word that doesn't say Absolute Vodka using the same typeface for Absolute Vodka, immediately you will associate whatever I say with that brand. Another very uh, recognizable typeface in the US I'd, and probably around the world is also the UPS typeface, mm -hmm. which uh, if I write something with a typeface, immediately you will recognize it. Of course, there's also other elements like the brown, I mean, the shittiest color ever for a brand it's the ups brown but at the same time nobody else can touch that color it's like they've nobody was going to take it but you've taken it yeah they took it and and sometimes this is also what we say to our clients if maybe the color that we are chosen with for your brand makes you uncomfortable it's probably good because it means that nobody else is using it. Okay. And it really helps you to um, define yourself. Okay, so I wanna have a talk about being uncomfortable. I wanna see if we can shift gears and go into talking about being uncomfortable. One of the themes that's coming out through the spotlights is the role of the designer as being confident in being uncomfortable and that the designer is actually being employed to experience the uncomfortable now so that the customers in the future don't need to experience that uncomfortable. It's a very interesting proposition, isn't it? That if a designer resolves something, the future customer doesn't need to be uncomfortable because it was resolved. But the yeah. world doesn't stay static, does it? It changes and that the designer is going to continually need to go back because the customer's viewpoints change, the market viewpoints change, the company's offers changed. But it's how do you solve those future problems and make it appear simple? But it never is simple, is it? Yeah, it's you're totally right. Our job is... Uh, sometimes try to foresee the future and bet on certain uh, certainty that we have without really going through market research sometimes. Also, there's different, you know, kind of designs. Like there could be product design, which is very difficult to, uh, to amend once I receive a table that doesn't work or a chair that doesn't work, the only thing I can do is can send it back. But if the bottom of an app doesn't work, you send a bug report and the bottom will be fixed with the next release within a couple of days. Uh -huh. So um, our job is 
definitely to try to foresee how the future will be and making sure that our audience, our client's audience, our audience is always our client's audience, will feel comfortable using or experiencing whatever we created for the client. And I think it's, our job is really to um, help our customer customers or audience to really feel comfortable to make decisions that are easy to make because we are um, bombarded every day by decision. I have to make a decision every two seconds. Should I click okay or cancel? Should I click next or backward? Should I click open or close? There's these decisions, these micro decisions that are really making us our daily life very complex. And we always have to say yes or no. And uh, the job, or I think of a designer is to facilitate these uh, uh, answers or uh, so that for the, for the audience becomes natural. So whatever I'm designing for you will help your customer to feel relaxed and happy whenever decides to buy your product or to click that button. I remember, oh, look, it, it might be three or four years ago, we were having a quick meal at Italy um, in, in New York. And we were sitting down and we were surrounded by produce. And there were some beautiful pasta packets there with glorious type on it. And then about a year later, I heard that you had a client that you were doing a house brand for their, you know, their products. I think they had something like three, a couple of uh, uh, grocery stores. They had 300 plus SKUs and that you needed to come up with a system for them that meant that customers who had confidence in one product, that they could then iconically understand that this was also part of the same family. It was same, same, but different. Yeah. That's similar to creating the accent and the ownership that's in that corporate typeface you went and did with that branding system that then helped the grocer. And it wasn't a very large grocer. I think, was it six stores? I mean, they're like, a, like 20 stores. Yeah. Okay, 20 stores. But 20 stores doesn't mean that they're, you know, oh, JCPenney. Sure. They, they, they're, not, they're not a behemoth. They're, yeah. they're still a boutique size. But the investment that they made gave them efficiency in... Well, the system meant that it wasn't extraordinarily expensive to come up with new packaging for 300 different products. So the range could become 500 quite easily. It meant that there was a faster decision for the customer, that the customer knew that this was the house brand that I had confidence in because the previous house brand product was good. I expect this house brand product to be the same quality. So it speeds up the customer. It makes their life less complicated. And it means then that from a shelf perspective, the shelves are going to start to look more beautiful because they now have some synergy to them than, than all these different packets trying to fight with each other. I'd never realized how similar the role between that corporate typeface and that, say, packaging system. They're quite similar to each other, aren't they? 
yeah it's uh it's a way really to to reassure your customers say hey yes we are here whenever um, uh, a market like that makes their um private label it's saying yes i'm here don't worry i'm here i'm taking care of you with their packaging they're able to say yes i can take care of you when you buy soap or when you buy butter or when you buy coffee i'm here i'm here so once you buy coffee and you were and you liked that or it was at the right price point for your wallet and then you see another product that is similarly designed like the coffee you will definitely be more um, relaxed in making that choice the the choice dilemma gets lowered by a very high percentage point and we see that with if i see italians and the way that they if anything has an italian flag on it it must be decent quality because it's come from italy yeah or yeah. actually i'll change the i'll change the decent quality it it holds cultural investment that will resonate with me yes because yeah. the, the quality isn't necessarily guaranteed no no it's not and especially uh, for me as a, as a as a, a uh, italian uh, who lives in the states whenever i see the italian flag i really look if it's italian made in new jersey or italian made in Sicily. <laughs> and then you know i try really to read between the lines and making sure that uh, what i'm getting it's authentic and again we can all be swindled anyway so if if it was made by a guy named um john who moved from from brixton to milan and then made made it in italy and it has the italian flag on it it doesn't have the same cultural investment it might be a really good chair or table but it's kind of masquerading and uh, the confidence isn't there is it i'm gonna say something that may sound very um controversial i've got well, never um a lot of there's a lot of places here in new york that say that they're italian but they are made owned by people who have grandparents who were italians and uh, they've been raised and they lived all their life here in the states and they are not italian i'm sorry even when my daughters are saying that they're italians no, like, no, 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 no. sorry and so but there is this interesting thing so i would definitely not trust those places to get a pizza from i would definitely get pizzas from a lot of italians who immigrated recently to the united states that are bringing a different kind of pizza let's say uh because i they're, they're really coming from italy they're not coming from italians that immigrated here 50 years ago but at the same time there's a lot of amazing american chefs who spend a shitload of time 
going and reverse engineering the good stuff that they tasted in Italy. And when they come here, they, because they did so much studies, they can do stuff that are way better than anyone who was born and they think that just have it in their DNA. No, it's not enough. And what we've been able to do there is look at the, <clears throat> what is cultural investment? And that cultural investment is a contemporary. So I remember when, when I went to Italy in my early 20s and I'd grown up in Melbourne and Melbourne had one of the, a very large Italian population. I went to school with a lot of um, the, uh, the first generation children of, of immigrants from Italy. I thought I knew what it, it, Italy was about in Italians. And I got to Italy and I got to Rome and I'm going, you're not Italians. What I realized was I had Italians that were in a time capsule. There was some distortion that they'd evolved a little bit, but what they were trying to do is they were trying to grab on to cultural hooks from before they left. And I think that's the trouble for any, any immigrant group is that they try to grab cultural hooks caught in a piece of time. And brands do the same thing but they'll grab onto a cultural hook of when we were great or when things were, were better. But a brand needs to be contemporary. It needs to evolve. The life is about what's next. Museums about what was past. Yeah. Design is actually about what's next. And so I find what I find particularly the work that I see your, your, countryman and good friend uh, Pierre Antonelli doing is that tension between how do I go create a collection of design artifacts but also be at the forefront of one of the next questions that we what's next and so what I love about her work as a curator is that she's she's making bookmarks in history of this was what was but she's challenging and being provocative about well what what's the next question which which is what to me design is about design is about next and therefore those putting those cultural hallmarks in helping an organization to invest their future culture is as important as reflecting the past culture I, actually i think the past culture may be the trap of a hack the designer is really trying to go and actually invest the future culture for what's next. And I look at people who do that so, so brilliantly. Um, and, you know, there's, there's not many people that I see responsible for going and making those future culture statements. You're one of them. I've seen the work that you're doing. I can think of half a dozen others that are in there as well. It's so important to understand the culture investment part because companies want to have a future and that's why they're coming to people like you. Yeah. The Best companies that are investing in design are the ones who are really aware of the fact that they need to be uncomfortable when they make a choice. Because if you make a choice that is comfortable, it means that you're just up to your neck, dipped into the past and afraid of going next. You're like in molasses, you cannot move. If it makes you uncomfortable, it makes you rethink about your processes and uh, makes you uh, 
being able to really reinvest into yourself and into your customers and giving them something that is going to benefit them. That state of being uncomfortable is not pleasant. That's why you get uh, rejection. You get the best logo presentation that you do. You're like, oh, this is the most amazing one. Yeah, that will never go through this particular client because they don't understand that being uncomfortable is what is going to give them success. I've got, this has given me some inspiration. I'm going to see if I can do a collection of the most devastating rejection for a piece of art that somebody had prepared. So there, no doubt there's a piece of work that you've done which you thought was absolutely fantastic. You've presented it and it was totally rejected. I know, I know there's some other designers that we've had these conversations, like I thought I got it so right and the client just rejected it totally. Because that's an important, we need, that's like the bruise that you get, the knockout in a, in a fight where you think, you're, you think you're set up and all of a sudden you're out. Yes, I think that's uh, usually the rookie mistake. We've been able to avoid those mistakes in the past uh, 10, 15 years. And once we learn that you need to sit with the client and prepare the client and go with them slowly to the place that is uncomfortable and, and reassuring them that that place is what is going to help them to be successful. Because if you go and uh, at, at a presentation and you show something and say, hey, look, I'm amazing. Look, I did this incredible logo. It doesn't use even your name. It just, uh, it just has uh, weird letters, weird colors, weird everything. We don't use photographs. We use just uh, color splashes. They will be like, what the fuck? Why are you doing this? It doesn't belong to us. But if you create a sound uh, a business uh, a brain strategy that then brings the client to the design that you think it's appropriate for them, then you are really working hand to hand with the, with the client and you're able really to help them to, to think about the future and, and fit comfortably. And it's, and it's not about it's not about breaking through. It's about bringing them along, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. We learned this lesson and I haven't had a logo rejection in very, very long time. Okay, so I wanna go in there because I've been, I've been to the University of Mark and uh, I failed a few years and, uh, and then eventually graduated that I, there was the right time to learn things. I think you've been to the University of Mateo. I'll put a link in to that other podcast that we went and did, which was about you talking about learning. Because that, that, like, it, it, there's a whole podcast just talk, talking about that. But the right time to learn things is very interesting, isn't it? Because 
somebody can take you to a room, you know, down a corridor and show you a room. If you're not prepared to go into that room, if you're not ready to go into it, if they force you into it, you're going to say, why am I here? But there's a right time when you are ready to learn, when you are ready to grow and accept that. And when that happens, it's synergistic. It all just falls into place. And as you said, you got past that point. And because you're now bringing the customers along, you're taking them through the brand strategy workshops, you're taking them on, a, on an expedition into the unknown. I won't call it a journey because an expedition has unknowns in it. A journey, I ask Google, take me from here to there. That's a journey. An expedition is something which is the unknown. So you need to you need to take them on that expedition. And to refer to it as a journey, anybody can take you on a journey. A great designer takes you into the unknown, it takes you into the uncomfortable, and they help resolve future problems for your customers and make it elegant, make it appear simple, but it's never simple. Yeah, um, I really hate when clients are telling me, yeah, I just need the simple and beautiful identity i'm like yeah yes everyone needs that to get there it's a really long uh, expedition uh, we need to i need to understand what you mean for that uh beautiful and simple and and then we also need to ask your audience if it's the right audience for something that is simple or if an audience that is right it's it's can can it's prepared to have something that it's a bit more complex and maybe complex is what is gonna be better for you and i don't know i don't know i don't know that until i spend time with you to understand what is your goal and what is your customer's goal so we need to spend, we need to have a few dates together when we talk, when we do some, some you know, uh, sessions with post-its on the wall where we ask you questions, we drink some wine maybe. And so we know each other well and I understand well what is your business goal. And once that is clear to me, then I can take you to this expedition safe and sound destination yeah it's interesting I, I find music is such an such an in, intriguing space when it seems so simple but there is it's so complex what's happening in there and i'll stick on the italian theme i'll go into the movie cinema paradiso and the theme music in there which is by enrico maracani and it sounds like it's such a simple tune but when you pull it apart and you begin to understand what he's doing there and the cultural references that are the signatures that are in there but he's went gone he's made something which is unique it is a signature if you hear that if you hear a couple of bars of that you will always know that is from that movie and that, that to me is that interesting thing it's got that simplicity but the simplicity is an appearance behind immense complexity and Designers who want to say, we make things simple. Simple sounds cheap. Simple sounds five minutes. I don't know how long it took Enrico Maracone to go and actually put that track together, but it didn't happen quickly. And there's probably been a thousand drafts of it. 
and it's been gone through the various production phases. We understand that when it comes to music production, we've got to understand that when it happens with type, when it comes with uh, branding work that's done, with it's a branding system, and that there's a need to continue to make it look simple because it is all about making it look simple, but we know it's never simple. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting that you're talking about uh, soundtracks, um, especially like uh, Cinema Paradiso. In a certain way, if you think about the main theme of a movie, it's kind of like their logo. Mm. And then uh, um, a particular instrument that gets, that plays that, that music, that, that, that theme becomes kind of like the typeface. Mm -hmm. And then it gets repeated throughout the, 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 the movie in different ways. But at the end, you always perceive the same. There's a certain unity. There's a center of gravity, which is the theme. And it gets maybe played with different typefaces. But then at the end, it goes back to the main typography. And you see that all the type is part of the same family. Let's say if the music is like, I don't know, in, in, in the movie Birdman, which is just drums, that's the, the typeface that they use across the whole, the whole movie. If, I don't know, in, uh, in, in Chino Paradiso, which is more orchestral, they use a, a very wider a range of typefaces. Could be like, I don't know, the whole Garamond family with different weights, italics, swashes, etc. So, yes, I think it's at the end, the simplicity is in using a system that is used in a coherent way. And then it could be articulated in a way that is rich, not complex. It's different. Yeah, and, and, and so I think there's uh, the riches and words have incredible meaning. And I, I love the way that being brought up in Australia, you speak English, the world's English, you know, if you go think of the interchange language. But I was fortunate that when I lived in Sweden and I learned Swedish, that I learned this lesson, which was the word recognize. And most Swedes don't understand this, but because you've come from outside, you, you look at the word recognize and in English, recognition is a cognitive function. In Swedish, it's an emotional cognitive function. So in Swedish, it, the, it's a compound word which says to feel again. And if you wonder why Swedes have empathy, it's because in English, we talk about recognition a cognition process, it's rational. In Sweden, you're feeling again. Yes, and, and, and all of a sudden, I just had this insight, which was how many things change because you actually just change those words around and you, and you reconsider them. The Aboriginal Australians, the First Nation people in Australia, they talk about being on country. Country to us generally means land. It means a place. 
for them being on country is a immersive 365 degree. It's about place. It's about smell. It's about mood. It's about weather. It's got, it's got so many dimensions and complexity to it. And then when anglicized Australians try to try to understand what it means to a first nations person to be on country, they take one dimension. It's about place rather than that holistic experience. And, and that's so important that the designer can actually get all of those different dimensions and not turn them into one dimension, but to keep them alive. And I think that's what happens in musical scores, as you were saying, you, you know, can encapsulate that signature throughout the, the, the long composition of the whole score of the, of the film. It's very important that you don't try to bring it down to one factor, but often when you're in a boardroom, there's somebody in the boardroom who wants to go and define it as one factor, and they're the person who's going to either make it succeed or fail. And so we all fall into the trap of listening to that one person in the boardroom, and then that's what it's renowned for. And that, so I think there's we, we need to make sure we keep alive all of those dimensions. Yes, and, uh, you know, it makes me think about when you make this... Uh, um... You tell this story about the, the nation uh, makes you think about the clients who are only thinking that their brand is their logo. It's not. Their logo is just a little part of the whole ecosystem that is type, colors, photography, copywriting, sound, interactions. All of this is you know, that's the, the real organism of a brand that we, you cannot uh, say, and it's, and it's complex and rich, but it can be simple if it comes from very um, precise uh, principles. And uh, it's very important that the, the customer, uh, the client, our client and whomever, and maybe us, you know, if we are the branding company, work together trying to define those principles and making sure that those principles of their brand are simple so that we can then be rich when we present it to our audience. You would never des describe a ballerina who manages to pirouette perfectly as it being simple, it's elegant. Because there's nothing simple about a beautiful pirouette. Yeah. And, and so I think it, it's a failing that we, that in the design studio, we're looking for how we make the complex simpler. We shouldn't be taking that out of the design studio and then using that as the language that we try to explain the brilliance that we've done. It's actually about elegance. It's about gracefulness. It's a, it, there's a richness and a cultural complexity behind it, but it's never simple. I think at the studio door, the word simple should stop. Yeah. Um, yes. Though, I think uh, in the process of design, if you start, uh, you start from something that is complex and you have to clean stuff down stuff down otherwise you are creating a system that it's unmanageable 
So often there, were, there was a, a friend of mine who worked at Apple many years ago, and he said that on the wall, there was this uh, mural that was three words, the word simple, simple, simple repeated three times, and the first two were crossed out. And uh, I think it's a really good practice, really to, to see, okay, how skinny can I go with my idea until it still, st it still maintains uh, its strength? Okay, mm -hmm. how much I can shave out? And it's still the same idea. And then once you get to this core, to the center of gravity, then it's really easier to expand it and make it rich and, and beautiful and uh, um, sophisticated or whatever you need to do for this particular client, because you can go back to this kernel and say, am I going too far away from this kernel? Yeah, maybe I'm a bit too far away, but it's still there. If the kernel is still there, then it's okay to go this far. If it's still being part of what we're doing. So yes, I think simple could be, um, I mean, simple, probably only Apple can do simple because they have, have such a complex system <laughs> or a, a system of, of a complex system to create simplicity that they can do it. And, and there, that's, I think, where the duality exists between complexity and simplicity. I had a lawyer friend of mine and uh, she, she contested. I'm sorry for you. Yeah, well, look, she's not really a lawyer. She's actually quite a nice person. <laughs> And uh, and she she said to me, no, nah, it's never simple. And, and it was like this finger waving. No, oh, no, 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 no. It's never simple. And she gave me the line, "We make it appear simple." And I went. And she said, "That's why I get paid so much money. I take complexity, incredible complexity, and we make it appear simple. And that's how people make a decision because people can't make a decision about complexity." They can make a decision, okay, this agreement works between us, but there's a thousand lines of, you know, statements over here and another thousand lines of statements there, but we managed to get to an agreement point. Appearance of simple is what we do for customers, but it's complex. Appearance of simple is what comes out of the design studio, but I'll maintain it's never simple. Maybe the word to use is not simple, is digestible. Digestible. Because you can eat something that seems simple, seems beautiful, and it's just a piece of bread. And uh, it's very complex. It has a very complex preparation to become that fluffy and that uh, um, with that texture, those textures. And, you know, I'll, I'll grab it and I put it in my mouth. And it's, it goes down very easily. And then I buy and I, I bite another piece. And it's still a very complex uh, preparation, a very complex kind of product, but that bread is delicious. Yeah, maybe it's simple, but it's definitely digestible. Delicious and digestible. Matteo, I think I'm going to leave things on being 
simple, digestible, and delicious. I think that's such an amazing place. But before I go, there's two things I try to do before I finish up any of my spotlights. One is I'm going to ask you who's inspiring you. But before that, is there anything we should have discussed that I haven't brought up, we haven't had time to get to? Because I'd hate to close this out and there was something that you said, I really want to talk about this, Mark. Um, I think we covered a wide range of things. It was really interesting conversation. I always love having this conversation <laughs> with you. I feel always challenged. I always, oh my God, I have to speak with Mark. It's going to make me say things that I don't know if I'm up to it. And <laughs> you're always for, up to it. Thanks for pushing me. Thanks for pushing me. <laughs> okay, so, so that's good. So, and, and thank you. Look, uh, part of it's actually working out how to get into the future faster. And uh, we can't get into the future faster if we don't go into next. I don't want to have the previous conversation with you. I want to have that next challenging conversation. And hopefully you felt comfortable while being uncomfortable in some of because that's about creating a safe space. That's what I try to do. Okay, so who's inspiring you? Who's inspiring me? Yes, I have a... In, musicians are always inspiring oh. me. And usually musicians are doing something that nobody else likes in, in my family. And there is this musician, his name is Jacob Collier. He's British and uh, he's uh, making a lot of people uncomfortable. Cool. And uh, his music is very interesting. I have to say, have to say that it's definitely complex. He doesn't spare any and he say, would you say, don't spare any uh, bullets? He makes stuff very complex. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes there are certain tunes are very simple. He is uh, um, challenging a lot of uh, preconceives in music. And he's a pop musician. He doesn't, it's not like a uh, classical musician but actually or or a jazz musician is actually it doesn't matter you can put him in a genre but it doesn't really matter but he's challenging so many things he's even challenging the eight notes of the piano oh, he awesome. works in works in microtones is really has melodies that are using notes that are in between the black and the white keys and it's really, really uh, refreshing to see someone. He's super young, he's like 25. And he started doing amazing thing when he was 19. And uh, he's incredible in, as a musician. He, he uses technology. He knows composition very well. He can play any instrument that you give him in a sense and he's so sophisticated in terms of musical knowledge and at the same time he can tell you yes it's just music these are just sounds you can do anything you want with it and it's interesting that he can create something that is very complex and then in the same, at the same time telling you you know this is this could be music, just 
a little thing. And I re it really awesome. Amazing. It's really then amazing. I'm going to recommend everybody that they drill into that. I'm finding, and it's interesting about the, I never thought I'd actually be giving a shout out to this band because I, I thought they were a bit overproduced and a bit prosaic, which is Snow Patrol. So, so, so I'll put a link in. So Snow Patrol, their albums had the failing of being too polished. But then a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, they went out on tour and they began to go do stripped back versions of their songs. So getting it, like taking the weight of all of that extra production out. And the songs are now coming to life. You, you can feel every moment there. And you see this little ensemble of three players who are now working together to create these moments. Oh, my God, Father. The, the, you can just feel the emotion that's in there. But what's interesting is the band members, they're in flow, and they themselves are surprised at what they're getting in that exchange of energy between the audience, the composition, the moment of that, uh, of that happening. It is, I'll, I'll put in some, some links. I have been blown away over the pandemic how, my, how I've gone from having discounted Snow Patrol and saying, oh, yeah, it's okay, but it's overproduced, into loving the fact that they've got this stuff that's that's stripped out. Um, and we're going to be looking up Jake Pollock. Matteo, it's fantastic to walk around inside your mind. Thank you for giving me some access. <laughs> Thanks for walking inside my mind. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to walk with you in the, in the streets of New York when finally you'll be able to leave uh, um, your continent to your country. Well, for viewers who, um, uh, who don't know, Australia is locked down. I can't leave this country even if I want. Oh, like There might be one or two ways, but it's pretty hard to get in and out. Um, you have to pay the guards special money so that they'll open the gates up. But I mean, um, I'm an expert at that. It's bribing. So we're heading into summer here in Australia. So we're in spring. I won't be traveling to the Northern Hemisphere in winter. I think it will probably be something like about April, May that I'll uh, hopefully get out onto it and I can uh, start to do that. Matteo, again, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to being able to give you a big hug and have some time with you in person very soon. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, cheers. Ciao. Ciao, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.